0: This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Hello, and welcome to Bookmark This, a Straits Times podcast in which we talk about books in the headlines and recommend to you new reads. I'm Olivia Ho, and I'm joined today by my co-host, To Wen Hello, it's Valentine's Day again. And while we are once more not for the commercialization of holidays, we do think it is quite important, especially in a time like this when we're having a pandemic and so on, to celebrate love. So, we've each picked out a couple of books for this episode that are about love. One is a new release and another is a classic. So, Wendy, what is the new book that you picked out?
1: So, I've picked a book that's actually pretty heavy. It's not all peaches and cream. It's uh, called Jack by Marilyn Robinson. People might know Marilyn Robinson as this Pulitzer Prize winning American novelist who won the Pulitzer Prize for her 2004 novel, Gilead. So, Jack is the fourth book in her acclaimed Gilead series, which is an intergenerational saga of family, religion, and forgiveness. The first three were set in a small town in Iowa. This fourth book, Jack, is set in 1940s Jim Crow-era St. Louis, Missouri in the States. So it tells the story of two people, two unhappy, lonely people who should not love each other, but do. The titular character, Jack, is a drunkard. He's a self-described invertebrate bum, uh, recently out of prison and he's a tortured soul, um, a lonely character. And he falls in love with Della Miles, an African-American high school teacher who's the daughter of a very respectable figure in the community, a preacher who's known in the black Methodist community. Crucially, Jack is white, Della is black, and it is dangerous, illegal, in fact, for them to be together. So the book begins in a cemetery, in the cloak of darkness, in the middle of the night. So they run into each other in a the cemetery. They, they met before, but this is another chance encounter. And they, they start talking, and they have this really long conversation about all kinds of things, predestination, souls, angels, Hamlet, and doomsday. So (laughs) very, very romantic stuff. One thing that struck me about this book is just how well-written it is. Uh, Robinson is a brilliant wordsmith, and everything is so intricately patterned, so sensitively written. I'm just going to read out a passage from part of the cemetery scene where the two of them have been talking, and then after a while, Della suggests that she might leave and head home. So um, Jack, being the tortured soul that he is, he, he starts to think to himself, and I quote, So this is how it ends, he thought, five minutes into a conversation he had never hoped for. After years of days that were suffered and forgotten, no more memorable than any particular stone in his shoe, here in a cemetery, in the middle of the night, he was caught off guard by the actual turn of events, something that mattered, a meeting that would empty his best thoughts of their pleasure. Those dreams of his had been the pleasant substance of long stretches of time, Privileged because they were incommunicable and of no possible interest to anyone. Certainly never to be exposed to the chill air of consequence. But she, Della, was gathering herself up in that purposeful way proud women have when they are removing themselves from whatever has brought on an absolute no of theirs. Forever after, the thought of her would be painful, because it had been pleasant. Strange how that is. Yeah, so this book is charged with theology and with heavy themes like grace, forgiveness, and predestination. Robinson seems to have many fans, um, one of whom is former US President Barack Obama. Other people, I think, will find her writing somewhat off putting, alienating, or even just boring. And I can sympathize. I, I admire her craft, I admire her writing, but I find it quite hard to love Jack, not, not just the character, but the novel itself. I think, like other critics of her work, I find her characters seem to inhabit a kind of airless world. It's very introspective. There is plenty of psychological insight, but I feel there isn't enough flesh. The
0: characters don't seem quite of flesh and bone. Abstract and spiritual, yeah. But she is a very beautiful writer, I find, that her writing has this quality that really makes your reading slow down. Yes. And that's what I think I enjoy about her writing. It's very rare nowadays to find work that you cannot speed through. You just have to slow yourself down to go for it. And I find I was really rooting for the two of them even though you know it's going to end badly, and they're just not meant to be together. You really do hope that it does work out. You do. And there's something about her writing that just rings
1: true. She's a very careful writer. She was quoted in The New Yorker recently as saying that you know, she feels everything has to be structurally and integral, and that if I write even one sentence, that does not feel right. It is a flawed structure. So very careful, very sensitive writer.
0: Moving on to an anthology of local love stories. This is A View of Stars, which is edited by Anita Devi Pillai and Felix Cheung. So it's by a lot of Singapore writers. And even though we do have a ton of local love anthologies already, what intrigues me about this one is that part of the brief seems to have been that the stories have to be based on real love stories. So there are little notes at the ends of each story to tell you, you know, how it is based on somebody's real-life experience. The two editors, who also do contribute stories to the anthology, they base their works on stories from their own families. So Anita's hers fictionalizes the story of how her paternal grandmother came to Singapore. So her paternal grandmother was married quite young, chose to leave Kerala, India, in the 1940s, to join her husband in Singapore, even though they knew at the time that the Japanese were going to invade. So she deliberately left a safe place to come to Singapore to be with her husband. Then Felix's story, it's called How I Met Your Mother, reference mm-hmm. to the TV series. It's the story of how his father met his mother while hanging outside of their kampong in Geilang Lorong Long 3 in the 1960s. And he only found this story out because his parents never told it to him, and he only found out at his father's funeral when his dad's old friend and one of the original wingmen who helped them get together came to the wake and told him the story. It's pretty sweet. The title of the anthology comes from Felix's poem, I Watch the Stars Go Out, a poem he wrote some time ago, and there's an extract of it, which I will quote here. It says, Perhaps love is a view of stars through the telescope of years, now aged, no longer uncommitted in chosen places nor fearful of that strident moment when light explodes into a million shards of heart. So the spectrum of stories is quite wide-ranging. as the historical and most of the present. There are two COVID-19 stories, as one might expect. And there's one story that's set in the future, which is Inez Tan's Art Artifice, which could be described as a dystopian flower power story. It features a heroine called Ixora. And there are authors from veterans like Robert Yo, Mira Chand, and also newcomers like Inez, Elaine Chu, whose debut collection, The Heart, Sick Diaspora, and Other Stories, came out last year, and Asia Bakir. The collection's quality can be quite uneven, as is often the case in these anthologies. Some of them are very focused on the historic detail of the story as opposed to its actual craft. So in that sense, they are valuable records, but, you know, maybe not so enjoyable as fiction. I do have two favorites. One is Delivery by Yo Jo So Jo Anne is the 2018 Epigram Books Fiction Prize winner. She won with her debut novel, Impractical Uses of Cake, which I, you know, enjoy very much. And the other is Alta and Vega over Gimmo by Linda Collins. Both of these are ironically ornithological mythological stories. <laughs> so they're about birds and myths. Delivery is an epistolary fairy tale about a debutante who shocks polite society by going around these incredible shoes that look like fire or grass or birds. And nobody knows where she's getting the shoes from. And she's carrying on this secret correspondence with the shoemaker. And it is spun off from the story of how Yo's first great aunt ran away from a very suitable marriage to great scandal, which she only found out much later because grandmother wouldn't tell it to her until she was older. And it's clear that she's enjoyed herself very much replicating the style of the ads and the letters of the time. I will read this advertisement that appears at the beginning of the story. In the Penang Echo, right? Yes, so it goes. The following advertisement appears today in the Penang Echo Wanted, a wife, must be good looking and young. Interested parties, please apply to FCH, care of Penang Echo. In connection therewith, the editor writes, Yinang mothers need no longer ask what to do with their girls as an advertiser in today's echo wishes to find a wife. We, however, implore applicants to reply by letter as the members of our staff unfortunately have not been given authority to judge applicants for the post. We are considering barricading our doors if merry maidens in search of a husband storm Beach Street tomorrow. <laughs> And Alta and Vega in Kimmo is set in present-day Singapore. It's about a young New Zealand expatriate called Ellie, and she's faced with her unplanned pregnancy during seventh month. And she befriends the elderly uncle living next door alone, and they go to a Gertai concert together. Linda Collins, she is a copy editor with The Straits Times, and she has copy edited our work before. She is best known in literary circles for her memoir, Loss Adjustment, which is about her teenage daughter's suicide. Malta and Vega are two stars from The Legend of Neolang Lang and Ni, um, Cowherd and Weaving Maiden. It's about cowherd who falls in love with a celestial maiden, but they cannot be together. So I think that every year they have to wait for this bridge of magpies to form so they can cross it and be together. So the story is quite an unusual aspect of expect life you don't often see represented and all these finance tech bros and bankers living in condos and so on. It's a couple living in the heartlands, maybe not so appropriate for each other, but still trying to make it work, watching Thai. Yeah. Now, if you like what you're listening to, follow our podcast series, Bookmark This, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Like us and give us a rating too. Back to our show and on to our next book. So our next book is Atonement by
1: Ian McEwan. A classic. Yes, a classic. This is McEwan's 2001 metafictional novel about a doomed love story in 1930s England. Sorry, my choices of novels today, have been quite, they're all quite heavy going. But anyway, Atonement is a classic and it's beautifully written. So many listeners will have seen the 2007 film adaptation starring Keira Knightley, James McAvoy and a very young Saoirse Ronan. So for those who aren't familiar with the plot, well, it begins several years before the Second World War. Um, And it's the love story between an upper-class English young woman, Cecilia, and the housekeeper's son, Robbie. And they have both recently graduated from Cambridge with degrees in literature, and they're back in Cecilia's family country estate for the summer. Their lives are upended when Cecilia's 13-year-old sister, Branny, who has a talent for writing stories, tells a half-innocent untruth. Robbie ends up in prison, Cecilia cuts off contact with the family, and then the Second World War breaks out. Robbie enlists in the army, and Cecilia becomes a nurse. And we later realized that the book is, in fact, a draft for a novel by the adult Briony, who is now in her 70s and suffering from dementia. So one thing I love about this book is just how beautifully written it is. It's mesmerizing to read. I love the attention to detail, from descriptions of a shattered vase to parallelograms of light, you know, when doors crack open. And it kind of also speaks to how Briny likes to see the world in a very orderly way. She likes to impose order and harmony on the things she has seen, even though they might not quite make sense. So this desire to fit events you know, into a geometric, neat, orderly narrative frame it does have tragic consequences in this story. The stories we tell ourselves can be dangerous. Another thing I found quite interesting is the way McEwen tries to describe how he tries to explore the idea of memory and perception. It's a slippery thing. The idea of um, the broken vase, you know, fragments of memory, fragments of the imagination, and how with dementia, things are literally disintegrating and falling apart. It's just so poignant. And the conceit, the metafictional conceit of having Bryony tell the story of these two lovers means that we only ever see them through her perspective. It's almost like we're looking at them through a keyhole in the door, which makes it so much more interesting to read. I'm just going to read out an excerpt from Midway in the novel when Cecily and Robbie meet each other for the first time after Robbie is released from prison. This is a few years after the events in the first half of the book take place. They sat down, looked at each other, smiled, and looked away. Robbie and Cecilia had been making love for years, by post. In their coded exchanges, they had drawn close. But how artificial that closeness seemed now as they embarked on a small talk, the helpless catechism of polite query and response. As the distance opened up between them, they understood how far they had run ahead of themselves in their letters. This moment had been imagined and desired for too long, and could not measure up. I guess we can all relate to that on some level, right? If you've corresponded so long with one person, and if you haven't seen them in the flesh for a long time, that expectation that builds up is
0: often quite hard to match. Yeah, I'm, I saw this article today on Facebook about uh, a okay. man who… <laughs> I've met my girlfriend during the pandemic, and we have never met in person. I
1: know. It was It was The Guardian, wasn't it? Yeah. it was, yes, the, it was the Guardian. Yeah. So I imagine a lot of people will be
0: able to relate to that nowadays. Mm. So moving on to A Merrier Work of Fiction. Indeed, very merry. So this is not really a book, fiction, but my favorite Shakespeare play, it's As You Like It. It feels a bit like cheating because you, it was made for you to like. So of course you <laughs> like it. Um, but the character, Rosalind, who is the heroine in this play, she's the best. She's awesome. She is the daughter of a disgraced duke, and he has been usurped by his brother, and he has been sent into exile in the Forest of Arden. but she is allowed to stay at court because her cousin Celia is very close to her. But eventually, her uncle cannot stand her, and he also exiles her, and Celia goes with her because they cannot bear to be apart. And uh, they run away, and Rosalind has to disguise herself as a boy called Ganymede for safety reasons because it's not safe for two young women to be traveling about by themselves. And in Arden, she encounters her old crush, Orlando, whom she met during a wrestling match. Though now that because she is in disguise, he does not recognize her. Or does he? Who knows? And he is going around writing really bad poetry about her, Rosalind, and putting them on the trees. <laughs> and she decides that she's, so she offers as Ganymede to cure him of his obsession. She says, I would cure you if you would but call me Rosalind and come every day to my cot and woo me. So basically, they... are workshop their relationship through these sessions. And so what begins as this very airy-fairy romantic ideal of love becomes something more sustainable. And also along the way, there's a great deal of sexual ambiguity and confusion because she's dressed as a boy and he's not sure if he's attracted to this boy or not. I think it's clear in the script that he's attracted to her even while she's a boy, but he's also not sure what's going on. But, you know, that comes out as a strong relationship. And I find that it's one of the few healthy romantic relationships in Shakespeare. <laughs> very which, sustainable. Yes. So the other one is, of course, Beatrice and Benedict. I'm a book do about nothing. But most of the relationships in Shakespeare are not very good. like Romeo and Juliet. Terrible, no. you know. <laughs> Hamlet and Ophelia. Yes. No. <laughs> you met at a ball and then decide to kill yourselves for each other. And, you know, not even checking if the person is still alive. Romeo and Juliet is this, can't remember where I read this, but Someone said that it's about how tragedies occur because the hero is the wrong hero. So for instance, if Hamlet had been in Romeo and Juliet, he would have thought about everything really long and he would have checked if his girlfriend was still alive. Yes. Whereas if, if Othello had been in Hamlet, he would just have been like, Claudius is the guy I need to kill. I will kill him. That's it. Yeah. And it wouldn't have lost a five acts. Anyway, back to As You Like It. So one of the things I find really relatable in Rosalind's situation is how the way that she evokes the giddiness of a crush. And she's complaining to Celia and she's like, oh, how full of briars is this working day world? I could shake them off my coat, but these birds are in my heart. Later, she says um, that thou didst know how many fathom deep I am in love, but it cannot be sounded. My affection hath an unknown bottom like the Bay of Portugal. So while she's counseling Orlando, she also counsels a bunch of other couples. And everyone in Arden is sort of in this tangle of relationships in which they're all in love with each other, but they haven't really worked out how they are in love with each other. And to that extent, I think Rosalind is a bit stage managerial. She's another thing I appreciate about her. She's trying to sort out this tangle and she's trying to get everyone married off properly. And then at the end, she introduces the god Hymen in this wedding celebration and he arrives to bar confusion and make conclusion, which, you know, is something that stage managers have had to do since the beginning of time. And it has a brilliant epilogue which it would have been Shakespearean times, but it would have been delivered by a boy dressed as a girl, dressed as a boy, who has reverted to being a girl. So many layers. Yes. <laughs> metatheatrical theatrical <laughs> way. I enjoy that very much. And uh, I will read part of the epilogue, because I love it. It says, It is not the fashion to see the lady, the epilogue, but it is no more unhandsome than to see the lord, the prologue. And then later she goes on to say, I am not furnished like a beggar, therefore to beg will not become me. My way is to conjure you, and I'll begin with the women. I charge you, O women, for the love you bear to men, to like as much of this play as please you, and I charge you, O men, for the love you bear to women, as I perceive by your simpering none of you hates them, that between you and the women the play may please. If I were a woman, I would kiss as many of you as had beards that pleased me, complexions that liked me, and breaths that I defied not. And, as I am sure, as many as have good beards, or good faces, or sweet breaths, well, for my kind offer, when I make curtsy, bid me farewell. And on that pleasant note, we end this episode. Once again, thank you for listening to us. I'm Olivia Ho. And I'm Towen Wen Lee. You have been listening to our Bookmark This podcast, which you can subscribe to on your favorite smartphone audio apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Like us and rate us. We will catch you next time. Happy Valentine's Day.